Today's guest is Marcus Christo, a homeopath in the UK who founded the charity Travelling Homeopaths Collective in 1990, which was the same year he graduated from homeopathic college. The Travelling Homeopaths provide acute care to hundreds of festival goers across the UK at festivals such as the Glastonbury Festival, the Cambridge Folk Festival, the Deershed Festival and the Stainsbury Folk Festival and much more. Marcus is also a practitioner of the present child method, which was pioneered by Dutch homeopath Janita Benama. Interestingly, before Marcus became a homeopath, he was working in the catering industry at the Royal London Homeopathic Hospital. So his fate was on the cards even before he knew it. You can find out more about Marcus at www.thc.org.uk or www.marcuschristo.co.uk or check the show notes for more information. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now my mum and your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, homies, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangout. Today, we get to hang out with Marcus Christo from the UK. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you. (laughs) It's lovely to have you on today. I always start off by asking my guests how they were first introduced to homeopathy. Do you mind sharing that with us? It goes back many years when I lived in a little rural village in East Anglia and there was a local alternative person a few doors down and she was a herbalist and ran a health food shop. And as well as that, I then discovered she was studying homeopathy. So she used to put all these books out and give me the old remedy, probably to the annoyance of my parents who were very very scientifically driven, particularly my father. And uh, yeah, she gave me an old remedy or two. And then I was working in the catering trade when I left school. I went and studied catering and then I ended up doing a few years stint in London and then back somewhere else for a year to do some more studies. And when I came back to London, I ended up taking the lowest paid job, which everyone thought I was quite insane. But it was at the Royal London Homeopathic Hospital in Great Ormond Street. Where it that used to be. is cool. I read that in your bio and I'm like, what? Of all the places. What, what was that I got like? To meet some amazing, I got to meet some amazing people. And um, the most amazing person I met was the Queen's physician at the time. He's now deceased, a guy called Peter Charles no, it was Charles Elliott. So before he, oh, before Pete, oh really? Pete, okay. And we started off on a bit of a bad note because he wanted some things out. I don't know for uh, his little Masonic group, which is called <laughs> the Order of Saint Lazarus. And in the end, I, he was writing a quill pen to me, and, and I'll probably write back in a manky NHS biro. And in the end, we clarified a few things, and we became rather than enemies, we became good friends. One day we were doing this really amazing spread to his group, the Order of St. Lazarus, and he came up to me and said, I can't thank you enough. You just transformed everything. Just one letter. And then you phoned me up, taking the initiative to phone me up to actually sort of sit me down and say, well, what do you actually want from us? Because we can provide it, but it'll come with a cost. And he said to me, have you, he said, you've got a good listening skill. He said, have you thought about studying to be a homeopath? And I smiled and I said, in two weeks time, I start my training at the College of Homeopathy. <gasps> and he went, amazing. Oh. So, you know, he said, well, if, I need, if you need some support, then talk to me. He was ousted from the faculty of homeopathy because he was also a chiropractor and he ran this healing route and they used to wear these black capes and these flat hats. Oh, and really? Imagine it, it Queen, so the home had a hospital was on to Queen Square and they used to walk across this square. It, it was quite dark. It was like out of a, a horror film. And they used to go down into this crypt in this church and I'd love to have been a fly on the wall to see <gasps> what they actually did next. Me too. They'd come back after this sort of service they'd have in the crypt and then they would feed them and water them and they'd go home rather drunk. And <laughs> so it was all good fun. So yeah, my journey started, yeah, really then, uh, officially. And I spent four years at the College of Homeopathy. 
I was blessed to meet some really amazing people. Most of them, I later found out, were druids. What druids? They were druids, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the druid order here in the UK was set up by, who was fronted by the head druid, the arch druid, was Thomas Maughan. And Thomas Maughan was the person that really brought homeopathy to the UK. And out of that, what was born was the Society of Homeopaths and the College of Homeopathy. And everything and then is, is stemmed out from those two things is stemmed out from there and other schools have, have manifested. So it was, it was only when I got sort of talking to a of different people and, and they found out that you had to be a druid to study it in the early days before the colleges were set up. But I've suddenly began to realise how small the planet was. It was our, after graduation, I was going off to Glastonbury, this was in 1990, and I was going off to, to run the, the homeopathic tent, as it was known as then. It had been run by another school for donkey's years, and it, it was exclusive and not inclusive. So my remit was to try and be as inclusive as possible, but don't worry if it's the first year, it isn't quite as inclusive as you want it to be, but just gradually open it up, because we know there's lots of colleges out there. And so, yeah, I was looked after by some people I grew up with, really. They were older than me, mentors in different ways, of different faiths and paths of life. But they looked after me. And, yeah, it was really when I, I left my coat behind and I had this big camper van. And I thought, I'm not driving that back through the, the city to get down to the East End to pick up my coat. So I hopped on the tube and I ran back. By the time I got back, graduation, I know, I've been given my certificate, all that bit happened. But there was sort of champagne and God knows what going on the lawn. And all that was left was the lecturers. And I sat down and had a very interesting chat with Barbara Harwood, who had become the principal after Robert Davison had been pushed to one side as vice principal due to too many wacky ideas. He was a really good guy. They were really good, both a good dynamic team, really. And when I sat down, I was having a chat there and drinking champagne and, and uh, telling her what I was up to and telling her that Carol Boyce and Linda Shannon were also joining us at Glastonbury, along with one student and the rest of us were all graduates. There was 10 of us. She said, do I know this person and that person? I suddenly realised that all these people that I knew, that were like the elders, different paths and faiths in life, were people that I'd been hanging out with and that, that Barbara was good friends with them. And then I found out the story of how she got into homeopathy and it was, she knew the sex pistols and so she wanted to save Sid and Nancy from their heroin addiction. And that was set her path in homeopathy. And then I had to ask her about her flamboyant clothing. I said, tell me now, no, this, these clothing must be Vivian Westwood's clothes. And they were. <laughs> I've been right for years, but didn't have the courage to ask her. <laughs> Wow. Okay, I've heard a lot of interesting introduction to homeopathy stories, but I think that would have to be in the top five at least. <laughs> So yeah, I went off to Glastonbury and yeah, and I, I got there quite a few days before everyone else turns up. And I'm afraid that I got rather unwell. I'd been treating lots of people and basically I was treating dysentery. There was an outbreak of dysentery on the site due to oh, some fun. problem with water supply. <laughs> and I got dysentery as well. And by the time the crew turned up, I was telling them to F off. And they're making my truck dirty. And somebody said, you need to go to Arsenic. I was like, I'm taking it and it's not doing anything. I think one of them, they took me under the wing and, and gave me some remedies. And I then managed to join the rest of the team midweek, having some week on my own. It's quite, quite funny. But yeah, and it was then myself and uh, another colleague, Andrew Ward, who we both studied at college together, decided to move the whole thing on. And we did the same year we did the Cambridge Folk Festival. And it was literally, and I know we said it in our film, we keep saying it over a point of Guinness, the birth of the travelling home pass happened. No. And then we, you know, we started to do more and more events. And over the years, we've developed training days, like an induction day. And we've, yeah, we're doing lots of different things now. You can't, in the early days, we used to treat lots and lots of people. Now we treat hardly any people. And what the problem is now, what we're realising, the receptive audience, we've known this for a while, is the 18 to 34-year-old. 
Now, I reckon only 20% of those know what homeopathy is, mm-hmm. either because their friends were brought up on it or they were brought up on it. So they've got a natural curiosity. So they'll turn up and ask us questions and then we'll give them a remedy for their hangover, their hay fever, whatever their summer acute is that they're expressing. And then we get another, so the other 80% haven't got a clue what it is. They still think it's oils. They still yeah. think it's herbs. Yeah. They still think it's, you know, is it hands-on or is it this or is that? And even the word homeopathy sort of then quirks up other things and you get all these really macho testosterone driven males standing up from all oh, homosexuals yeah so it's like a case of having to really address the audience and educate them which sounds really rude, rude thing to say but we're now finding that we've got to engage the audience in a different way so we're doing interactive talks now and we're doing plant walks where we can on certain festival sites you're doing what sorry plant walks did now, you say plants Plants, we take them around a part of the festival site <laughs> where we found a load of plants that we use in homeopathy. We then oh. talk about the materia medica of that plant. Okay. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So from then we bring the whole of homeopathy alive. That's very interesting. So you did you? So you are the founder of the Travelling Homeopaths Collective. Did you start that by yourself or did you start it with somebody else? But in the early days, Andrew Wall was around for a couple of years. He decided to do some other things. So, and then we... I think it was in 1997 we became a a charity. That's incredible. So you have been, and you started this in 1990, like just after you graduated. So it's been going for 30-odd years. 32 years. Two years of fallowness and biting fingernails and diversifying (laughs) on a project that's backfired slightly because of the pandemic. Yeah. For 20-odd years we had a division. We wanted to actually take the whole concept of what we're doing in a muddy field, a, a music event. And we can talk about small music events where there's four or 5,000 people, up to Glastonbury where there's 200,000 people. Uh, didn't realise there's that many. Wow. Yeah. So back yeah. in the early days, the most we ever treated at Glastonbury was three short of 1,000. This was treatments, 997 treatments. Wow. Over, uh, never, I don't know how long Glastonbury that. is, like a week or so? That was five days. So okay, five like days. So like day we were treating. And it was like literally next, next, oh, the kettle's bore dry. We didn't get a chance to have a cup of tea shift change over and then go up for a few hours and then come back and it'd be next again about six hours later when he came back on shift and it was crazy it was crazy but now as i say we've got to we've got to re-educate the public we've got to we're not re-educate we've got to educate them we've got to get mm. rid of all the misconception of what we're really about mm. and, and around can actually help them. around when did you find that numbers started dropping probably we were in denial i think so it's probably mm. 20 years ago we're in denial oh, okay. about it <laughs> In total denial, I'm thinking, oh, okay, maybe it's just the demographic of, of the festivals to change. And admittedly, they might have done a little bit. If it's white middle-class England, they're the ones with the disposable income who can afford homeopathy. Mm. So we should be educating them even more. You can't just sit down and say, oh, well, let's talk about homeopathy. And you've got to be a bit more imaginative with it and really draw people in and, and how it can actually help them or their family. That's so interesting. And then how many festivals would you do in a year, just roughly? And also my ears are like perking up because I'm thinking this is a really good excuse for me to go to some music festivals. <laughs> I think the most we ever did was my wife and myself, probably about 10 years ago, did 13 <laughs> events. Wow. It's more that than one started a month. Off, that started off, I think, early parts of June and uh-huh. it went on until the end of September. Oh, wow. So my wife's also a home pastor. We kind of would come back, we'd do the washing, we'd both go frantically to our clinics, and she runs a health food shop as well, so she'd get oh, into wow. dealing with what needed dealing with there. I'd be loading the bus up, she'd come back from work, we'd drive off to the next event, we'd meet up with a few people, put the marquee up, and, uh, and two hours later we were sitting down with a cup of tea, talking to people. That's wonderful that you're married to a homeopath as well and you two can do it together. That's really special. 
Yeah. Amazing. And that's just so cool. So I'm guessing with the pandemic, there was probably not much festival helping going on, but have you done any since? Have things opened up a little bit more now for you to be able to? Well, this season, yes, it's opened up. And the problem is you start, it's like starting up from scratch. Yeah. We've probably got, a, probably got a good bank of 80 regular home pass that will want to work an event, in, but they might take a season out and mm. they might, something might happen. And then so trying to mobilise people and the people are in two camps. So there's a, those that were fearful of the whole pandemic and mm. those that were thinking, oh, okay, we're home pass, we can deal with this and let's yeah. get on with it. So we lost a few people because they're in the fearful moments for the moment mm. until we can convince them that things aren't that bad. And it's made life a little bit interesting because we've ended up negotiating some new events. One of our volunteers used to work in the music industry and I've had problems getting into new events because it's who, not what you know when it comes to getting into an event. Now, the thing is, we get into events for free and we take up a small ticket allocation off of the organiser. And mm. it's a pitch they could sell, it's tickets they could sell, it's income they're losing. Mm. So we've got, to, we've got to prove to them that we're valid for money. Mm. So since Claire's come on board, she's been inspired by music friends to different music producers that run different events. Oh. So recently we got reintroduced to Rob DeBank, who I'm convinced his wife is actually a homeopath. And I'm sure I taught her on one of my days called The Art of the Acute, which manifested out of the training days of the travelling home pass. But I can't, you know, I had a conversation with 30 people in that room and I'm doing the teaching and the catering and everything. You're trying to do it on a shoestring in a small venue. But I would like to talk to is apparently Jay Jagger's daughter is a homeopath. Okay. That's that would be really, that one, I right. just, I'm putting it out there. If anybody listening to this knows her, Assisi, I think is her name. Apparently okay. she's a homeopath, but I can't find any information online on how to get hold of her, but that would be so cool to have her on the show. <laughs> Maybe Claire will. Anyway, so, she, so basically you get introduced to a music producer mm. and then when you can then talk to the music producer, he or she will then decide whether they want you to join an event. So uh-huh. it's good being good having Claire on board because we ended up doing two events that one we did 10 years ago and then things went a bit wrong for the organisation. That was festival and camp festival festival is no longer happens but camp festival does and then they set a new one up in shropshire as well but it's sort of, so it's north midlands so it's mm. not quite halfway up the country but nearly particularly for me so we, yeah we got into two, a couple of new events so yeah i think probably this year we've probably done about nine events i don't do them all we've got small rigs that, that are like satellite rigs with crews of people that go around and, and do it and what sort of complaints do you tend to treat at the festival we did an audit in 2000 and I think that was in the days where we were still treating around 50 marked people. And believe it or not, the biggest complaint is hay fever. Oh. There's a lot of these youngsters come out into the field. Some of them may have been diagnosed with hay fever, mm. something they're out in the elements. They come out of a large town or a large city where probably the pollen count is a lot lower than being out mm. in the sticks. And suddenly they're expressing themselves as hay fever. So, okay, admittedly it's a chronic complaint, but we will we'll do some palliative care and then we refer them on to a practitioner in their locality. Amazing. Anything else? What sort of other things would you see? It's no different to being in a town or city centre mm. or a country practice, to be honest with you. Mm. We get a lot of injuries where people are like tripping over things in the dark. Mm. So they're probably the contusions, bruising and stuff, probably the next batch of uh, thing, complaints that we actually treat. Mm-hmm. And then we get a lot of summer coughs and colds, and particularly if it's an event where it's, it's been quite dry and then you're walking around dry tracks and ingesting all this dust. And, uh, and it causes aggravations. And mm-hmm. A few singers, a few famous singers with lost voices, and they're fretting, am I going to make my gig tonight or tomorrow oh, night? Cool. We're, we're going to perform the miracle, and we've, we've now get a few times, which has been really good. So, yeah, even stage fright. A few of them have stage fright. That's but you don't cool. want to take away too much of the stage fright, because sometimes you need that stage fright, that adrenaline rush, that adrenaline. to actually give yourself a good performance. If you're not worried, then there's something wrong. Yeah. 
Now, the style of prescribing, that acute prescribing that you have to do like on the spot there, I really feel like that's a different, that's actually a bit of a different skill to chronic prescribing. And uh, I don't know, there's a bit of an art to it. I feel like you can't not need to not overthink it, overthink it. You need to really know your materia medica. You really need to find that good keynote. And I don't know, what do you think is the art of the acute, which I know you have a one day workshop called the art of the acute yeah and then the therapeutics so tell the homeopaths and the listeners out there a little bit about your course and what sort of how is acute prescribing different to chronic prescribing and what sort of skill set do you need really you need to throw out the window everything you've learned (laughs) and come in with an open mind and be an unprejudiced observer the must and i think the best thing you need to be doing is using your senses so i did a i've done lectures before on sensory prescribing and people think I'm an art of fruit lip. If you go into the aphorisms in the Organ of Medicine by Samuel Heinemann, I think between 90 and 170, you actually read those aphorisms. And there's a few in there that just will blow your head away. And it will make you realise that, oh my God, my home, no wonder my results aren't as good as I want them to be. Because we get fixated in a certain methodology. So what we need to do in, in, in these situations, put everything along to one side. And material medica can help. But the dangers of knowing too much material medical is you can start asking questions around a remedy. Oh, it's a yeah. no-no. Let's never yeah. do that. Yeah. Even if you've got a hunch about something, put it to one side. <clears throat> right down the margin on your bit of paper. Let go of it. it often it's not the obvious, or, and often it is the obvious. Mm-hmm. But until you've actually heard the whole story, you, you haven't got a complete picture. Yeah. So it's like the four-pronged stool. You want to know the modalities. You want to know the symptoms. You want to know the etiology. And you want to know what's actually being affected with affinities. And the reason why you want to know the affinities is you know which part of the repertory you need to be diving into. Mm. I get people to point. There's about times, oh, I've got a stomachache and the stomach's up sort of just below the heart there. And yeah. Just the ribs. And they say, I've got a stomachache. They actually mean they've got an abdominal ache. Yeah. So you can spend ages looking in the wrong part of the repertory. That's true. So never That's finding true. the similar and then getting stressed out because mm. suddenly what should be taking 15, 20 minutes is taking you half an hour, three, four, three quarters. You want to keep the client focused. You've got to keep the client really utterly focused. You've got to keep focused. But at the same time, using all your sensory perceptions at the same time. This is where you're going to find the differentiating symptoms. So you want to find out what's going on right now. Not what happened 10 days ago or five days ago or three hours ago. That's going to lead you down the wrong cul-de-sac because it's going to, going to allow you to prescribe something that was okay then, but not now. Mm-hmm. The only crucial part is the etiology. Is when did it start happening? Oh, I was, I, it's when I arrived at this field of the downpour of rain, I got soaking wet. That's what you needed to hear. You don't need to oh, then I got a fever. It went to 97.1. And then I had this and then I had that. Don't want yeah. to know. Irrelevant. Just yeah. tuck it away. It's not, not going to get you from A to B. And if you're riding that bike for hours trying to find the civilian pen, you're going to not. You're going to fall off a few times. You're going to raise yourself badly because you're going to mm. end up giving a bulk prescription. That's literally in a nutshell. What I do whole days training for, for the charity, and, and I do another day of my own. And I do some of the same stuff at, at Southdown School of Homeopathy. They've, they've managed um. to persuade me to go do some stuff with them of, of late. And then I do acute therapeutics as well. I really don't like doing that. And it's a, it's, it's a lecture I don't like doing, but every homeopath wants a sodding shortcut. They're not prepared to actually work at finding the remedy, you know? And there is no shortcut. The shortcut yeah. is really in taking the case and keeping it precise and in a box here. Sometimes what can happen, though, is that we get a polycrest come up. And then you've got three big polycrests. You've repertorized down and you're thinking, oh, my God, what do I do now? And at that point, you've then got to really be really careful how you ask questions. Mm. You might need to get into asking them some more general questions about their own well-being. Mm. Because what's actually happening at that point is it's the constitutional remedy that's rearing its ugly head. And if you've only got a short space of time, 15, 20 minutes, you haven't got time to delve into taking a chronic case. Yeah. 
So who, what do you, you do know, then? You just quickly do a bit of differentiating, ask okay. a few general questions. Mm. And what's good is often somebody will come in with somebody and, you know, like a case with no mentors you can still prescribe on. It's how Bonehausen and, and, and some of the early day people mm. pre-Kent, before Freud and Young came along and influenced our whole decision and getting fixated on mental and emotional symptoms, which nine times out of ten in a cute case, they're irrelevant. Yeah. Totally irrelevant, yeah? Other than the fact, oh, no, he's not normally like this. He's so bloody irritable. We've thrown things around mm-hmm. the tent and we've actually got a symptom at this point, yeah? yeah? It's so clingy. Before, we have it. It's their general mm-hmm. personality and their own well-being. It's who they are. Remedy isn't going to sadly change all of that unless they mm-hmm. want to change. But then they've got to work out why they're like that. You know? Absolutely. Now, you're also working on, you see, the concept of street clinics in the UK. That would be amazing because... Yeah. I don't know about your health system over there, but certainly it feels like things are definitely imploding over here in Australia. It's just there's so many people now that are saying they can't even be bothered going to the doctor anymore because, for one, a lot of doctors won't even pay you. They will just look at you from a distance or they will just do telehealth. The hospitals are backed yeah. up. There's People are just not getting the answers that they seek. We've got wait lists here, especially yeah. if you want to see a specialist, nine to 12 months minimum for you to get in to see a specialist through the public health system. Yeah. I don't know how things are going over there, but I can imagine that, yeah, talk to me about this concept of the street clinics that you're working on? Yeah, so 20 odd years ago, we had a vision of actually taking homeopathy to the high street. Mm-hmm. And we, did, we had a truck designed and then went for funding and failed miserably. And then we put it on ice. And then back in the early 2000s, I think it's 2000. No, I can't remember. Anyway, probably no, it wasn't early 2000s, mid 2000s. We decided to do something about it. And we decided to pedal around the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Because that's a good thing. We did 200 miles in five days. And our roadie with his caravan was with his motorhome thing with with backup bits and pieces of of bikes and God knows what else on the back of his van. was a Dutch guy. He hadn't been back to Holland for a very long time. And so the five of us, the famous five, pedaled around the Nevers. We raised £8,000. We then got match funding. And then what did we do? Four years ago, we went out and bought, nearly four years ago, we went out and bought a truck. It was a big mistake. Oh, no. Huge mistake. I literally only sold it about a week before Glastonbury, and I I managed to recoup some of the losses, but not I not, not significantly. Yeah. It's a long, very long story, but in a nutshell, we've learned a lot from it. There's a shortage of HGV drivers. I couldn't get the HGV class lifted on it. I tried getting it through as a motorhome. The government's blocking that because they don't want people taking to the hills and going off grid because they want to be able to count and control us and all the rest of it mm. right now. You know. And it's an even bigger need, yeah, because like you're saying mm. in Australia, the same thing's happening here. We've mm. got a government that does not want to fund the health service. It really wants to go down the private route. And mm. it's, it's only going to be very wealthy people that can afford to be treated with a allopathic medicine and you know, good specialists, the specialist care that they actually may need. So, yeah, it's even more so now. So we're now at the point where the truck's gone. I need to see what surplus cash there is left. And we're now going to scale it right down to a small white van with a canopy <laughs> off the side of it, a table and some chairs and go for it. But I don't think it's going to happen until later on in the year. We're going to start somewhere. Yeah, I think we should have started this way. We should have gone this way around the first time around. Mm. The truck was all singing and dancing. It had its generator in it and it had lights and heat. And it, mm. it was absolutely glamorous. And it looked gorgeous inside by the time we finished sort of sorting it out. But it just wasn't, we couldn't get anyone to drive it. So if you can't get anyone to drive it, <laughs> and then because it had a certain class on it, it entered into proper no, problems with insurance. And, and oh, then, no. And then, all these things you don't think about, you would, wouldn't think about beforehand because you just wouldn't know that was required. I did a lot of research and I knew there was a few ways out of it all. And mm-hmm. the only way we couldn't even do it hypothetically, we had to mm-hmm. be the owners of the vehicle before the powers to be would listen to us. Uh, and 
we should have actually ditched it before we did anything then rather than we should have got rid of it in the first 12 months not four mm. years later really I always say you hardly ever regret the things in life you did as much as the things that you didn't do. So at least you did it yeah. and now you can live to regret it instead of wondering what if. <laughs> yeah, so, so we're going to have this little van and it's going to drive it into towns and villages and city centres, uh, allocated points where we've negotiated with the local authorities. Then we're going to basically run a, a drop-in clinic, which is no different to how we will work at festivals. The only difference is that we will actually be treating people that are on low incomes mm. and those that can afford treatment will basically be sold a gift voucher to mm. keep the truck going and the local home pass will then honour that gift voucher because they've the basically landed a new client out of us being there for with them. And now some of these people, hopefully, it will be home pass from the locality that we work in mm. and we've got, to, we've got to decide how we're working, how we're going to make it work. We're going to have to draw up a draft way of taking a case and get everyone to agree on that's how the case is going to be taken because if we know if you're going to go back month after month or week after week if it's a busy place then you're going to need some continuity so yeah. if you're not there this, this time around then somebody else is they can pick the pieces up knowing that we're all singing along the same crib mm. sheet mm. and that way around it's then also easier to collect data to prove to people that mm. here's the evidence that it's actually worked mm. um True. You know, putting it in a, in a system of monitoring it all mm. and that way it's also useful then when you want to go for some funding so you want to replicate this project somewhere else yeah. and that would be the dream is to have dozen a dozen trucks doing all over densely parts populated parts of the country and some rural stuff you know a dozen or so trucks buzzing around under whatever label there is mm. then great that'd be fantastic that would be so cool and yeah take it worldwide <laughs> Yeah. And uh, you do something else amazing called Present Child. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I went to go and have a look around on, you said it was a Dutch homeopathy, Anita Vanama, that started this. And I'm really intrigued after going and digging around on her website, what it's all about. But tell us a little bit about what's Present Child and what is the service that you offer to your clients? Okay. This goes back 20 odd years and you need to Venema. Basically, oh, I'm going to wind back slightly here how I met her because it was pretty weird how we met. Um, <laughs> I've got to believe you a... going from the stories you've already told. <laughs> you seem to have a history of this. <laughs> <laughs> we used to run a summer school up to about seven or eight years ago. And the only reason we haven't carried on doing it was because we, we lost the venue. The farmer loved us to bits, but mm. we lost this bit of farmland to work from. And then the, the pan- we, we thought about resurrecting it and then the pandemic came along and it was just like, it's never been a, a good little moment to resurrect it. There's a really nice homeopath who's one of the Druids, one of the original teachers. So that's still probably teaches now, Peter Chappell. And him and his wife, oh well, yeah, his strange wife, came and did some teaching at our summer camp. And he kept saying to me, you need to get hold of Unita. And he t- told me about this amazing Dutch homeopath that given up being a homeopath because she'd invented something that was so homeopathic and so precise and accurate that people couldn't get away from the truth. And she was running these programs of teaching it in the Netherlands. And so present child is what she called it. And she then decided to start running an international course. So Mm -hmm. she came over before she decided to try and run this international course. And she came and did a day's workshop for us. And it was absolutely mind blowing. We were just like a load of people were taken by it. And one of our volunteers ended up going off and studying it. She ran the first international course in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And then she was going to come to the UK and do it, but she couldn't get people in the UK to sign up to it. And I was at this point, I think, no, I've now got the time. I've cleared that job out of the way. I can see where I want to go. I want to go and do this. And I had to wait until she decided to run the, the second international course, mm-hmm. but she hasn't run one since. So we're going back to 2015, I think, when I graduated. It was 2013, I think, when I was 14, around that time when mm-hmm. I started studying it. And it was two intense weeks, six months apart, seven days, literally nearly locked into a classroom where you learn the skill of how to take the story 
and um and then how to, to do all the work around it all but it brings things up in you so you you'd start off on this journey as well which is quite an interesting one and you, you've got some really lovely people there to look after you need to and a woman called g who's her right hand woman so present child is two words because a child is a gift to us whether it's our own child or a child that we resonate with that you know mm. that it might be a niece or a nephew or a friend's child and so they're a gift and mm. they give us an introduction or not even an introduction they give us an understanding of ourselves yeah so a child is a mirror they're a mirror to what's going on in our subconsciousness and children will act out our subconsciousness mm. for us so when we get a child that's got adhd or ad or they're on the got Asperger syndrome or they're on the autistic spectrum or they've got some other learning disability or they're really angry or they're hyperactive or whatever mm. label i don't like giving labels but mm. these people have labels so then the parent that gets most affected by it will be the one that comes to tell you a story. Now, they might come to you with homeopathy and you know damn well that a remedy is not going to work. A little while back, I had a lady come to see me. She was desperate. Her child kept ch- choking on strawberries or, or any food. So she'd eat something, she'd choke, gag, and, and, and you know, bring it up. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. So I asked a bit more and I went, right, I don't want to take a homeopathic case here. So she said, why? I said, this isn't her story, it's your story. So I took the story of the child through the mother's eyes, but what she's telling me is her story. So I then, when I've taken the intake story, I then take that away mm-hmm. and I translate that story into her story. So literally when she mentions a girl's name, I can mention her name. Or if she mentions she does this, I do this. So I could do, so it's a very simple translation. I find the simpler you keep it, the more likelihood of the person having that light bulb moment of realising that when they were the same child age as that child, what was going on and how it affected them. And it'd be something that packed away in their subconsciousness to the, to, to the degree that it doesn't matter if you gave them a remedy. If you gave that mother a remedy, she's never going to get there because she's buried it so damn deep. Or the father has, or wherever he is. But it's, 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 she's buried it so deep. And there was one moment she thought it was one thing. And I said, no, you just told me that. You, you know that about yourself when I did the feedback. I said, it's something else. And I, so I did. I gave her the feedback. She didn't have the exact light bulb moment. And that was like on the Thursday. And then on, I think on the Monday morning, she phoned me up. She said, I was out walking with a, a friend of mine who you happen to know. And she just said something to me. And she said, suddenly I remembered what happened. I remembered when my mother felt like she'd stopped loving me. And I was so choked up. I held onto uh... it. I couldn't let go of it. And this child, was it doesn't matter what she was eating. She was choking it and choking, choking. And so at that point when she identified this, you know what happened to the child? She didn't have to keep it. choking off food anymore. That it, is it, cool. it really can be as simple as that. I think the problem is here in, in the UK, a lot of people are doing a lot of therapy. And, mm. and so sometimes they know what the problem is, but what they don't realise is how they're protecting themselves. So they, don't, what they, don't, they can't see what they've actually done to themselves to protect themselves. So I'm finding with people have done a lot of therapy, it's a little bit more difficult to hit that couple. When people have done very little therapy, three sessions of bang, wham, you've got them back on, on track and the child's freed from that story. I've actually found that as well because so often for people who've gone to a lot of therapists, they will often tell me what the therapist tells them about themselves. So they will say, oh, it's because I am suppressing things. My therapist says it's because I'm suppressing this, I'm suppressing that. You might not be, there might actually be something else to it, but it's like they can't then let go of the story that the therapist has told them about themselves and they're so invested in that. So it is, I do find that sometimes a little bit tricky. So I will always verify, is that what the therapist told you about yourself or is that what resonates with you <laughs> yeah I had one lady come about her son and everything he wore was brown his room was brown 
and he had terrible problems with his bowels where he just couldn't hold on to this diet. Oh my gosh. Lying out. So everything was brown, right? And I, so I did the feedback session and I thought, I'm getting nowhere. And I thought, there's got to be something. So I thought, just tell me about all this brown shit. What shit in you has got to come out? I had, to, I had to get really down to that level because nothing was working. And I thought, she, this boy really wants me to help him free him up from his story. He really doesn't want to be doing this anymore. He's yeah. telling me otherwise he would, his mother wouldn't have arrived on my doorstep saying, can you help me with this present child therapy? So then she said, I said, so she said to me, I know what it's about. I said, be sure you know what it's about. Yeah, I've been doing psychotherapy for blah, blah, blah. And my therapist has told me I don't have to let go of it. And my mouth dropped and I went, that's not what your son's trying to tell me to tell Leo. He's saying, you've got to let it out. You've got to let go of it. If you want to free him from this story, you've got to let it go. I said, so why won't you let go of it? Mm. So she said, I'm just worried what's going to happen next when I let go of it. Yeah. I said, your son's telling you something different. And then I used what she admired in him and I reflected mm. back. So I turned the admiring of what she admired in him into what she's forgot to admire in herself. Wow. I said, no, look, let's look at this way around. And then she went, okay. <laughs> And I, then I bumped into her somewhere about a year later. And she said, I can't thank you enough. In the end, I oh, did let go of it. That's the shit cool. came out, she said, and then everything changed. He's much better. I'm much happier. And I was like, wow, thank you. And yeah. hopefully his walls are not brown anymore because that's yeah. depressing. <laughs> oh, Marcus, it's been really fun having a chat with you. Can you tell our listeners just one last message that you want to leave them with and how they can get hold of you? And then we'll say goodbye. Yes. One last message. Oh, okay, yes. I think really what we need to be doing is pulling together and not pulling apart as homeopaths. We need to be supporting each other wherever we come from, whatever path in life, whether we're classical or not classical or we're a sensation or we're this or that. We need to be pulling together and helping each other out in these hard times. And we need to be getting out of the streets and telling people that homeopathy is absolutely wonderful and this is how mm. it works which is why the whole concept of street clinics. We're not just talking about actually doing things outside of man. We're talking about going out with a gazebo or even a wallpaper pasting table and a sun umbrella. Any incarnation we can get out there and talking to people and showing them what we can do to fix them and uh, really putting the profession home up beyond the map. Mm. Oh, you've inspired me. I'm As you're saying this, I'm just thinking, yep, I need to actually get out there. I need to figure out how I can get a van and get out there and help people so that that's amazing. And how can people get hold of you? We'll put your links in the show notes, but just is there anywhere in particular that you want to send them to or anything else that you want to share about how they can um, book with you or engage with you? Okay, if you need to get hold of me, marcus at thc.org.uk. That should get through to me. Excellent. Um, find that, Google my website's up and it's presentchild.me and marcuscriso.co.uk. And there's other ways of getting hold of me. Telephone numbers are on there as well. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah. Excellent. So yeah, don't do anything alone. Do it together. We, we know we're we're mammals. We're herd creatures. We need to be pulling together. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, keep an eye out for Marcus at some festivals. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was very fun having a chat with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. And take care, everyone. And yeah, enjoy being a homeopath.